All right, it is Monday, October 25th, 2021, and this is the Fight Business Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Auger, and today we're going to go ahead and talk about the UFC adding a $600 million term loan and whether or not that's going to really impact their credit, their ratings, all of that, why they took out the loan, all that fun stuff. Then we're going to go ahead and move on to Francis Ngannou talking about his struggles with his contract. Obviously, a lot has happened in, in regards to UFC 265 being an interim title made. Francis has been outspoken. His agent and manager have been outspoken in terms of the UFC's tactics here. We're going to break that down a little bit from a business perspective because there are a couple of key aspects we need to dive into there. We're also going to talk about UFC contract changes. According to John Nash over at Bloody Elbow, there's been a major change in UFC contracts that could very well impact the future of the business. We don't know if it applies to all the contracts, but at least a handful. It's been confirmed that this change has been made. I'll break down what that change is and really, you know, what it could do down the line for the UFC and for fighters. Then we'll talk about the World Fighting League. Is it real? Is it viable? Is it just another IFL waiting to happen? We'll break into that a little bit. It's an interesting look on things, especially with people involved. So I'll kind of give you my thoughts on how that all plays out. And then lastly, we're going to talk about John Jones, Luis Pena, all the domestic violence stuff going on. But from a business perspective, we're going to talk about why the UFC is keeping John Jones and why they let Pena go. I've seen a lot of people talking about how, oh, it's time to cut Jones. This is in breach of the code of conduct that the UFC set out back in 2013. All of this stuff. But from a business perspective, we're going to really dive into whether or not the UFC should do that. What is John's asset value to the UFC? And what are the risks by keeping him on the roster and having him booked to fight in the future? We'll break all of that down as well. So time steps at the bottom. Again, welcome to our new home on Sherdog.com. Super excited to be here. Thank you all for the support over the past month or two while I've been getting this together. Very excited to be back. And let's go ahead and dive right in. All right, so the first thing I want to talk about is the UFC has taken out another $600 million loan, bringing their total debt to around $3 billion. Now, why are they taking out the $600 million loan? Well, let's look at Moody's, who made this announcement, and see if we can figure that out. So according to Moody's, the UFC Holdings, aka the UFC, added $600 million add-on term loan is a credit negative but it will not impact the existing ratings or outlook. The net proceeds of the add-on term loan are expected to be upstream to UFC's parent company, Endeavor Group Holdings, aka Endeavor, and be used for general corporate purposes, including acquisitions. Endeavor announced the signing of an agreement to acquire OpenBet on September 27, 2021 from Scientific Gaming Corporation for $1.2 billion, comprised of $1 billion of cash and $200 million in Endeavor equity. Then it goes on to talk about UFC's current debt leverage, all of this stuff. So let's break it down for the layman out there. What this is, is the UFC has taken out $600 million to just give to Endeavor, who now owns 100% of the company, right? And really the main purpose of it is to help with the purchase of OpenBet. Now, makes sense that Endeavor went after OpenBet, right? They have some sports betting strategy pieces already with IMG Arena um, focused on, you know, UFC stuff, of course, PBR, a couple of uh, Euro basketball leagues they own, but also other sports as well. Um, And a a big part of it 
is when you're looking at the way betting is booming, especially in North America right now, just sports gambling, it makes sense you want a piece of the action. And they're able to kind of purchase their piece through IMG Arena and now open bet and acquiring this type of stuff. Because if you haven't noticed, if you live in North America, we're at a time now where it used to be kind of shunned to talk about sports betting on TV much other than the, you know, 1-800-GAMBLERS-ANONYMOUS type things. Now you've got NFL Sunday, what is it, Fox Bet app, so you can try and win Terry's money, or you've got DraftKings all over the place. Almost every sport I see now, there's a DraftKings commercial at some point that's like, put in your lineup or use our sports book. If you can't can't use it because you're in a state where you can't do sports book, well, there's a free contest you can join and still be a part of the action. This is kind of a, a golden age right now where after a law was kind of struck down at the federal level that said, you know, there is some interpretation here in terms of gambling within states. A lot of states have passed sports gambling laws. There's been a huge uptick in it. It's made a lot of people money. If you've looked at any of the stocks over the past two years for DraftKings, uh, FanDuel, William Hill, any of those guys that trade publicly, they've just had a huge boom because of all the new revenue, the new marketing and advertisement they can put towards gamblers and potential gamblers. It's a big deal. And if you live outside the U.S., you know, you've already seen this with Tab and other different companies because it's much more a common thing. In the U.S., it's been kind of sheltered. It's now opened up quite a bit. And so as that's happening, makes sense Endeavor wants to get a piece of that action, especially owning the UFC. So purchasing open bet makes sense. Why did the UFC take out the loan, right? That's a big question that I know I've gotten from a couple of people is, why would the UFC take out a $600 million loan and then just give it right to Endeavor? Why doesn't Endeavor take out the loan? Well, if you followed this channel before or you've been following Endeavor's financials, they're not the best. Endeavor is very debt leveraged, doesn't have a ton of profit. Most of its profit comes from the UFC. The UFC is kind of the crown jewel. That's part of the reason why Endeavor purchased the remaining shares of the UFC so they could own it 100%. So they didn't have to risk that going public provision that KKR or Silver Lake could have pulled the trigger on if they wanted to. So really, UFC is is the one with good credit. Think of it this way. If you're a married couple, right, um, and you want to buy a car and you take out a loan for a car, uh, if I have very good credit in the 800s or 750s, and this is all North American talk, not sure about other countries, but you'll get the same gist here. If I have really good credit where I'm in 750s, 800, and my wife has maybe five, 600 credits, she's had some loans, all that stuff, whose who's name are you going to put the car in? You're going to put it in mine because I'm going to get the better interest rate. I'm going to get the better deal because of my credit history. That's really what's happening here is the UFC has a much better rating for Moody's. It has a better outlook because it's constantly making money. Uh, some other tidbits in this announcement that I think are very important is the UFC performed well during the pandemic with revenue growth over 20% as of LTM Q2 2021 compared to 2019. So that means they're already grown 20% in two years, even through the pandemic. And this is a big portion. Attendance-related revenue is a relatively small portion of overall revenue, but attendance revenue has recovered as the UFC has been able to hold several events without restrictions beginning in Q2 2021. Moody's expects UFC will continue to benefit from strong operating cash flow with modest 
maintenance CapEx levels, and that leverage will decline well below six times by the end of 2022. That's big. That's essentially, if you want to decode that, it's saying that one, attendance is not a huge amount of UFC's revenue anymore, which we kind of know now for a while with all the media rights deals that have been signed. Two, they expect it to continue to be strong. And even though attendance has is not a large part of revenue, it's already bounced back with the events that the UFC has already held this year. So obviously, you know, their big event back in Florida, they've had several pay-per-views now in different areas. Anything that's not Apex related, their ticket sales have been very, very strong. And then their maintenance CapEx levels are low, which is essentially another way of saying, yeah, the amount of money that they have to routinely pay in costs, their fixed cost type of situation is low. So they're just going to continue making money hand over fist. And their debt leverage, which is now above six times, is going to drop below that. That's just a simple way of saying they're making a lot of revenue. This isn't a risk from a Moody's perspective because they're making more than enough money to pay their current costs, so they're getting a lot of profit, that they're going to be able to pay down this new debt they've added. That's fine. $3 billion, that's fine. You're making, you know, I think, I forget what John Nash's numbers was. He, he worked it out a couple months back. Um, but, you know, you're making like 800-something profit or 500 profit, something ridiculous per year. $3 billion, yeah, whatever, that's fine. That's essentially what this boils down to. So, yes, it's more debt. Yes, it was used for an acquisition that makes strategic sense. But the UFC is profitable enough that they're able to do this. And even though it's not something the UFC is acquiring, Endeavor can lean on them because they're like, the in this situation, the person with the good credit in the marriage that's trying to buy a car. And that's what they've done here. Expect more of this. Endeavor's acquisition strategy is part of the reason they became as big as they did. They really went after acquiring all different sorts of things, and they're trying to build out that ecosystem. As I've mentioned in other videos and a couple articles way back, they're really trying to build an ecosystem business. An ecosystem business is very similar to Apple, right? You have Apple dongles, you have Apple, the iMac, you have the iPod or iPhone now, iPod, old, um, all, all that type of stuff where it's all Apple products that give and work with one another and it kind of creates these Apple fans and users and people in the ecosystem. It's hard if you have a iMac and an iPhone and AirPods and all that stuff, it's hard to just say, you know what, I'm going to switch to Android or I'm going to just go to a regular computer because they're all interconnected. In a different way, that's what this is. It is, you know, okay, I'm watching the UFC and then I'm placing my, my betting through IMG Arena because it's just easy because I'm going to get advertisements for it on the UFC. And OpenBet, yeah, that's great. I'll go ahead and get special deals on OpenBet if I'm going through the UFC Arena. It allows for those synergies that will make this kind of Endeavor entertainment ecosystem. The on-location services, right? Some of the VIP experiences in the UFC, I believe the Apex VIP experiences now, if you go to the Apex uh, Live Fight Nights, serviced by on-location, which again is... Endeavor owned. It's creating this full ecosystem of products and allowing Endeavor to be in control and gain the revenue from all those products. That's what this is. So if you look at this, you say, man, how can they have $3 billion in debt and all this money? And how can they do that? 
this is common. This is what a lot of different companies do. This is how Endeavor got as big as they got. Debt leveraging is a major piece in corporations becoming these giant behemoths, right? If you look at almost any company that's starting out that now is huge, whether that is, you know, Walmart, maybe not because they started so long ago, but Amazon, Tesla, big example, a lot of these other places, it's part of that kind of culture of, okay, I'm going to go out and do mergers and acquisitions, uh, Brazilian mining for anybody that's into that. There's a huge thing uh, in, in the mining and coal and gas industry where acquisitions are a big, big piece of this, where you incur a lot of debt and you just keep acquiring people because they have the right pieces. Salesforce, anybody uses Salesforce or you've heard of Salesforce, that's a great example. They're going out and buying people up. They bought Slack. They bought other connectors, all you know, leveraging debt and other things because that allows them to get functionality and to kind of take out not necessarily a competitor, but maybe a substitution or a adjacent product and wrap it into an ecosystem. That's what Endeavor's trying to do here. So no huge news in terms of the UFC. It's just that this will become common. The UFC is going to be the good credit entity that Endeavor constantly takes loans out against as much as they can, right? But now that Endeavor owns it 100%, they can just do this over and over and over. It's, this is the first of many loans to come. So keep that in mind. All right, next thing I wanna cover here is Francis Ngannou talking about his contract and having some issues with the UFC. We've seen more and more fighters openly talking about their problems with either pay or contract negotiations. Contract dates is a big one. And Francis Ngannou has kind of been at the forefront of that as of late. Um, according to Ngannou, and this is from John Nashville with Bloody Elbow, uh, he is on the last fight of his contract, one that was supposed to have been terminated May 20th earlier this year. After he won the belt, though, from Stipe Miocic at UFC 260, the promotion ended up extending it. And I quote, this was on April 1st, three days after my fight. They proposed June 12th, and now I'm like, whoa, I can't fight June 12th. Why? Because I have a visa issue. You know that my visa needs to be renewed on May 20th, and it's your job to renew the visa, and I'm not allowed in the U.S. on June 12th. There are some other pieces in this article breaking down, you know, the contract, um, talking about he wants to spend time with his family, and they went back and forth and tried to get a fight in July, and then September ended up hearing about the interim title and was like, okay, I guess that's what's happening. And, and more importantly than any other piece in this article, if you go read it, is because Nganu had been unavailable for an August matchup that the UFC then tried to give him, his contract was extended another six months. Now, we haven't talked about contract extensions on here in a long time. But the way the UFC has used contracts in the past to build up the company that they have is it's kind of been in perpetuity, right? You end up signing a contract for, say, three fights. I'm a new fighter. Sign the contract three or four fights. I'm in. Okay, I do well. They go ahead and extend me another four fights. Okay, I do very well. I'm starting to climb the rankings. Now they might try and give me a six or seven or eight fight fighter contract. Maybe I say yes. Maybe I try and negotiate it down a little bit. If I'm savvy, say maybe let's do six, five. Go ahead and pull the trigger, I get more money, but they've now tried to extend the amount of fights I have on the contract. 
then I get into the top rankings, one through five, where I'm, I'm championship contender level. Now they're really insisting six, seven, eight fights. I've I'm, I'm made a name for myself. People recognize me. Maybe I'm popular with certain groups. Maybe I'm a Conor McGregor type. I'm becoming a superstar. They're trying to give me long, long contract lengths. Maybe I renegotiate before a title fight. Maybe I say, you know what, I'll wait. But they're probably going to throw who knows how much more money if I renegotiate early. That is a big tactic the UFC always used for up-and-coming stars, is if you are, let's say, three fights left on a contract, but you're a McGregor or an Anderson Silva or any of these big up-and-coming guys, they might come back to you and say, look, you're about to fight for the title. Let's get you more money. Let's go ahead and, you know, add a couple zeros on here. I mean, or maybe one, depending on where you were. But let's go ahead and, you know, increase that money. It looks very appealing to a lot of guys. They think they're going to win the belt easily. They're confident in themselves. Now they're going to get paid more to do it. Sure, let's go ahead and do that. That's a common tactic the UFC used in contract negotiations. And then let's say I make it all the way to champion, right? I'm dominant. I'm awesome champion. The minute I'm a champion, and let's say I'm on the last fight of my contract, I'm pretty dominant. I've won three or four times, defended the belt. They have provisions that automatically extend the contract. Championship clause that says, oh, we're going to go ahead and add so many fights because you defended your belt. All of this stuff. And so it kind of made it that if you were the champ, especially, you were locked in for perpetuity. Even if I had lost the belt, I'm still locked into the UFC for X amount more fights. Almost always three to four, maybe more. That's just a, a me climbing the ladder type scenario. Another thing that the UFC did for a long time, and as Nash points out in the article, is Joe Silva would essentially ask people to fight when he knew they weren't medically cleared. They were on the, you know, oh, you've got to wait at least two weeks of no sparring because you have a broken arm or, well, more than two weeks if it's a broken arm. But you get what I'm saying. You have those medical suspensions that are always out where you got to be cleared by a doctor or you're suspended for at least this amount of time before you can spar again. And then what the UFC could do is say, hey, you want to fight in a couple weeks or you want to fight, let's say, a couple months from now, but oh, wait, you're not cleared to fight. Well, that automatically extends it. That That is a tolling provision that extends fighter contracts when there was no real way for a fighter to accept because they were injured or they were out usually adds on six months or it adds on various types of things. Zufa even did exploited this, according to Nash, when there was no record of fighters being actually injured, where Silva told her to send a six-month contract extension, and this is talking about a UFC employee, despite having no record of a particular fighter being injured. In this particular case, it's Mats Nielsen. Um, you're, You're basically looking at the UFC during this initial time period and and on their rise in the early 2000s when they became the UFC where they beat Strike Force, they beat Pride, they acquired them, on that rise, they were doing anything they could to extend fighters that they wanted to, to keep under their contract. So those fighters couldn't leave and go to Pride, Strike Force, other promotions that may have been up and coming. They would lock them in. Various tactics and ways to lock in fighters into in perpetuity contracts as long as the UFC wanted 
them to be under contract, right? If the UFC deemed like, you know what, we don't like you anymore, they cut you, or they let you go renegotiate, they didn't care. But that was a huge, huge thing that the UFC needed in order to become as big as they are. As I've talked about in other videos, they needed that scarcity for the competitive advantage. They needed the top 50 fighters in the world all under one umbrella so that, okay, yeah, you've got maybe one or two of the best middleweights or heavyweights or welterweights, wherever in pride and strike force, but you've got the most under the UFC. You're going to see the highest level fights on a consistent basis in the UFC. That was a huge part to them becoming this billion dollar conglomerate that they are now. They needed that scarcity value. And the way they kept that competitive advantage was locking it in through fighter contracts. That was the main source. So here now we we see long time later that Nganu is still facing this type of stuff where he knows that there's a issue with his visa. The UFC knows there's an issue with his visa and that he can't say, yes, I can fight on June 12th because they have to extend his visa May 20th. So he's not allowed in the country on June 12th when the offer is extended to him. So he says no. And then, oh, they offer him a match in August that he can't do. And that, again, extends him out and says, hey, we're going to go ahead and we've offered you a couple fights. He said, no, here's this extension. And it keeps him under contract so that even though his contract is supposed to end on May 20th of 2021, and he could technically go fight for Bellator or Ryzen or PFL and all that stuff, he can't do it because of those tolling provisions. This is something we've seen a lot in the past, usually for less big name fighters, or at least they didn't talk about it as much, but this is the heavyweight champion of the world openly complaining about this. We've seen a lot of other fighters start to talk about it more. I feel like there's a a lot more conversation surrounding unfair pay or contracts now among more star players than there ever has been that I can remember, at least as of recent times, right? Um, you've obviously got the antitrust lawsuits. You've got this knowledge of, you know, the fighter revenue share the UFC has, as well as how these contract provisions work and what other fighters are doing or have been through. And it's kind of now sinking in for a lot of these big name guys, right? They want more money. I'm going to go out there. I know you UFC, you're able to take $600 million in debt and nobody cares because you're making that much profit. And I'm sure that's not what a lot of fighters realize, but that's a good example. Or, Hey, like you're making crazy amounts of money. You're a billion dollar company. You're doing all this stuff and you want me to go out there and fight for a couple mil plus pay-per-view points? Uh, no. Like, I want more money. I know you're making more money. Give me a share of that. I'm part of the reason that you're making it. That's from the fighter perspective. From the UFC's perspective, this has been perfect because there's a lot of question on whether or not those contracts in the UFC for UFC fighters are legal, right? Because technically, Nash has argued it violates the 13th Amendment. I could see that. I also think there's some contract law that kind of backs up that you can't have that extension, especially, you know, being an independent contractor myself and living in that kind of gig world. There are some pretty clear-cut rules and a couple of presidents you could kind of attack and say, look, UFC, you can't do this. Here's this other example of an independent contractor winning a court case in regards to this. 
I'm going to use, cite this and say, this is why it doesn't apply to me. And I don't remember the specific case names. If you want that information, let me know in the comments and I will go look it up. Um, but there are several kind of, kind of flags that say, maybe these contracts wouldn't hold up in court. But in order to actually find out, you have to have a judge rule on it, which means if you're a fighter, you've got to now pay for lawyers. You've got to really take on the UFC. It's what the antitrust lawsuit has done. They are obviously going at a specific type of suit with the monospony power and all of that. But, you know, you could hypothetically go in there and say, look, I don't believe that this is correct, that my contract is, is valid. And if it got all the way to the judge, who knows what they'd say? I think the, the main reason fighters haven't done that is one, again, the time and cost that it will take. But then also, if you get a judge to say, you know what, that contract isn't valid and throw it out, it's not like you get a bunch of money from that, right? You may be able to say this caused damages to your career because you were locked into this particular contract, whatever you, but since the UFC is the top dog, it's hard to say like, well, Bellator was going to pay me way more money. Like, eh, maybe not. And, and it's hard to know whether or not you'd really recoup the cost. You might just be kind of burning a hole in your pocket to get that thrown out. If a fighter really wanted to take a stand, they totally could if they had the money, right? Uh, McGregor definitely could. I feel like GSP probably could too at this point, especially with all his other stuff going on. I mean, you have a couple fighters that could take a stand and say, you know what? No, I don't, I'm going to just fight you in court on this. It's going to cost me X amount of millions of dollars. I don't care. I'm going to fight you. But that's the problem is the time and money it would take to really fight this. So it it's not surprising that this is really what's happening with Francis's contract. And going right into that, since we're talking about contracts and Francis being upset regarding his contract and everything, according to John Nash over at Bloody Elbow, he's confirmed with several sources that at least some UFC contracts now have a five-year maximum limit on them. That no matter what happens, right, you can't have these championship additions, you can't have these tolling like oh, I've been injured, it's you know, all of that. Now it's, okay, I sign on the dotted line. Yes, there are different ways it can be extended, but from the day I sign on the dotted line to five years from that date, the contract has to be up, unless I've signed another contract that supersedes it, right? So that's a huge deal. Again, we don't know if this applies to all UFC fighter contracts, but we know it applies to at least a handful, probably more would be my guess. If it's going to be in several people's contracts with different managers, which John made it sound like he talked to different managers there. I would assume that this is kind of the new boilerplate language. And John has pointed out also that this really goes back to after Endeavor bought Zufa, they, they made this change. And it also affects the antitrust lawsuit where, you know, you've got Cajun Johnson having kind of a separate suit against the UFC than the... Uh, Kung Lee and all of those, Nate Query, all those guys. And that's part of the reason, I think, is it's a different class of fighters. There's a different contract that's in there, especially with the term limit. So that is probably a protectionary measure for Endeavor when they bought UFC. They probably did their due diligence and said, you know, we got to kind of do something about this. It, it makes a major difference because we've talked and talked about how the UFC became their behemoth with all of these 
fighters locked under contract in that scarcity, having that competitive advantage. Now I can be a champion. I can go out there and defend and defend and defend and then say, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and go over to Bellator as the reigning UFC champ. I can hypothetically do that, right? Amanda Nunes has been champ the entire time that a if she had signed a contract from 2017, at least I believe she's been Bantamweight champ the entire time. Yeah, yeah, she's been Bantamweight champ the entire time. So she now, come 2022, if she signed a contract in 2017, she could say, you know what, okay, I'm just going to bounce, go over to Bellator, go over to PFL. Maybe I'll fight Kayla Harrison, who knows? She could hypothetically do that. Now that's providing that the championship contracts have that five-year limit, but this is under the assumption that all contracts now have that five-year limit, and that's a big deal because that's never been possible before with the way that UFC contracts have worked. I think the reason that those contract changes were made outside of the antitrust stuff and and other things going on, even though that's probably the, the main driver, but another key piece to this is that the UFC is now the far and away leader in the industry in terms of MMA promotions that are profitable, that have the name value of the brand. I know a lot of people don't like the comparison, but they're the WWE of MMA, right? In pro wrestling, you've got all these other little promotions, and yeah, now you got AEW, and you could make some arguments there, sure. But, but even still, WWE is the thing. If you're watching pro wrestling or talking about pro wrestling, you're probably talking about WWE. UFC is similar in the MMA world, right? That's why people say train UFC and why even some media outlets, big media outlets say, oh, we're going to watch UFC and they they replace UFC with MMA in terms of the sport. You've got Max Kellerman on ESPN to interchanging MMA and UFC multiple times. Doesn't even acknowledge Bellator, PFL, any of those guys. It's not a thing. Not a thing. That's how big the UFC has become now. And we saw a little bit of this when the UFC stopped going after every name value fighter. And that was around 2017, 2018, when Endeavor bought the promotion, or at least got the majority share at that point. But we saw a little bit of this where you saw a lot more free agency. But still, the UFC hasn't been negative in, negatively impacted by any free agent going to another promotion, at least in a meaningful way, Right? Sent Demetrius Johnson, you got Ben Askren. That actually was a net positive. Uh, Sergio Pettis gone. Great bantamweight, flyweight contender. Really hasn't hurt the UFC. Eddie Alvarez hasn't hurt the UFC. Pettis hasn't hurt the UFC. You could go on and on. There really hasn't been any fighters that have hopped over to a different promotion where it's really kind of negatively impacted the UFC or boosted the other promotion who signed them so much that that technically lessens the UFC's competitive advantage. It just hasn't happened. And part of that is, again, they are so far and away at this point, the name brand promotion, that through their marketing, through their advertising, through their name value alone, there are tons of fans and mainstream people, casual fans that don't watch all the time, that just assume the UFC has the best people still, whether or not they actually do. Light heavyweight is a great example of where you could make a case that Bellator's light heavyweight division might be better than the UFC's right now. 
especially if Jones is officially a heavyweight, not part of that. A lot of people said when Bellator signed Anthony Johnson, you all Romero, you have Nemkov, you have Bader, you have all these guys, Corey Anderson, there are a lot of people saying like Bellator has the better light heavyweight division. And it's an argument that could be made. But if you ask the casual or semi-casual fan about, you know, well, Bellator has a better light heavyweight division, one, they probably are like, oh, really? Two, they probably wouldn't really believe you. It's one of those two reactions. It's either like, uh, do they actually? Oh, I don't really care. I just want to see Jones fight or this guy or Jan. He's the champ. I want to see him fight. He beat Adesanya. They, they could care less. That's, that's not how it works in the mind of casual and semi-casual fan. Even the more hardcore fans, there is still a subset of hardcore fans that believe that UFC is the brand and only the best guys fight in the UFC and they'll defend the UFC nonstop. They're the same ones that get mad about people talking about fighter pay and say, no, you know, this makes sense that the UFC is doing these fights even when they don't. They have this, this following and they are, are equated as the best of the best in the mind of these fans that it doesn't matter what you say. It, you could have everybody hop over to Beller. You could have in the light heavyweight division that's currently in the UFC and have the UFC restock light heavyweight division with a bunch of contender series guys and tough guys, new and up and coming guys that may be known here or there. And I would guarantee within a matter of months, a lot of people are still going to say, well, UFC has the best division here. Over time, that could erode, right? If you're talking six months, if that was the case, if that scenario happened, and then you're talking six months, 12 months, 18, then it could start to erode. But even then, that's just one division. The thing is, the UFC has, has made their name as the best of the best, that even when you introduce new people who are better, so many people say, oh, well, they're, you know, AJ McKee, perfect example. So many people say, well, AJ McKee is good for Bellator, but he wouldn't last against Volkanovski or Holloway. And you, you can't know, right? That would be a fight I'd love to see. feel like a lot of people would love to see. But because they won't fight, it then becomes based on name value. And UFC has the name value in spades. So now they can start to put in these five-year maximum contracts because if a bunch of people start to leave... One, it's five years, so they have a good runway to know, okay, like these people could hypothetically all leave for Bellator or PFL, all this. So that gives them time to build up some new guys and push some new guys. And two, they'll be fine without those guys because they have that name value right now. If over the course of a decade that starts to erode where suddenly you know, some other promotion, maybe the World Fight League, which we'll talk about a bit here, or Bellator, who have you, is starting to kind of take over and getting a lot more name guys and becoming this whole thing, then maybe, okay, it starts to see some, some seeds of doubt. It could start an issue, and it could happen quickly, right? If enough jumped at the same time, it could happen semi-quickly. But even then, the UFC is going to be fine. It will take a lot to, to really hurt their profitability, to really cut into their profit margin. Because a lot of those fans that would also watch UFC and all that stuff, 
or I'm sorry, Bellator. If if John Jones and and a bunch of big name guys hop to Bellator, a lot of those fans are still gonna watch the UFC. It's just how it is, right? It would take a long time for those hardcores to start being like, I'm gonna watch every Bellator card and maybe watch the occasional UFC card. It would take a long, long time for that to happen. And and a major shift with a lot of key players that I just don't see happening. So that's part of the reason that they probably put that in was to protect themselves, Endeavor protecting themselves from lawsuits, and then two, it's not a huge risk. The other caveat here that I need to mention is that, okay, let's say Nganu, John Jones, Kamaru Usman, Adesanya, Volkanovski, let's just those five guys, all UFC champions, let's say all of their contracts came up at the same time. 2022, their contracts are all done. They're all like, you know what? We're going to go ahead and hop over to Bellator. Bye. We're going to test out free agency. We'll see you around. Here's the problem. The UFC is the only one, right now anyway, with enough money that they could afford to have all of those guys on the roster, right? Even with the backing of of Viacom, unless Viacom was like, yeah, we're going all in on Bellator and you know, Showtime was like, yep, we're doing this, we're spending all we can on this, it would be hard for one promotion to snatch up all of those guys at one time because of the costs. We know that Bellator is profitable or expected to be profitable, but only by, you know, a couple million. I think single digit millions. Can you afford to bring on five major UFC champions with pay-per-view points and all of that? That eats into a huge amount of your profit. And if I'm one of those champions, right? Am I going to want to go to Bellator or PFL or wherever have you if I'm going to make less money? Probably not. That's that's another key piece of this is even if a ton of fighters all came up for contract at the same time, it can't happen all at once because there is no promotion out there currently with the financial backing to acquire all of these guys and pay them and still be profitable. You would need either investors backing them, and and we're talking heavy investment, right? The type of stuff that One and PFL has been doing for years, which is possible, but still, you would need a lot of it. And two, or two, you would need to be backed by a company like Viacom who then signs off on basically Bellator becoming a loss for another extended period of time, hoping that the new viewership and pay-per-views and all of that would eventually pay for itself. It's a risk. And a lot of companies aren't going to just say, yep, you know what, I'm going to take 10 major names from the UFC all right now because they don't have the money to do it. They don't have the financial backing. The The equity you have to give up if you're a new company like World Fighting League in order to get that kind of investment or... You know, the, the losses you'd have to write off if you're Viacom, who's already kind of dealing with this shift to streaming that's hitting a lot of those cable and broadcast media companies, it's a lot, especially right now. In the future, maybe. But right now, there's no real backer I see that would do that, right? 
again, going back to the WWE comparison, the only reason that AEW is making as much noise as it is and is able to kind of have a lot of those WWE stars and kind of be viewed now as, oh, maybe they might overtake WWE and all that, which again, we're not getting into that convo. But the only reason that they're even around is because they're backed by Tony Khan and the Khan family who own the Jacksonville Jaguars as well as a multitude of other franchises and are obscenely rich. Have the money that they can go ahead and do that. I mean, they have more money than Vince McMahon, right? That's why they're able to let AEW survive. But AEW is not profitable. And they're, they've got huge overhead right now with the kind of wrestlers they're bringing over. Same thing would happen in the UFC scenario. You need somebody who, like a billionaire, who is just going to say, you know what? I really want to get into the fight game. I have billions of dollars. I'm going to go ahead and get some investors on board with this and then front a bunch of high-paying fighters, pay them more than the, the UFC and all that, and, and, you know, eventually, hopefully, return profit. And even then, you still have to be profitable. If, if you're not profitable, that only lasts for so long. And the higher overhead you have, the harder it is to be profitable. So, again, this is where those contract changes are massive in the sense of it does open the opportunity for several big names to leave the UFC that wouldn't be possible before. But it's if you're expecting or you're hoping maybe we have this crazy shift where in 2022 or 2024 or whatever, a bunch of big name guys all leave, maybe they could spread out across several promotions, right? PFL grabs one, Bellator grabs two. Uh, World Fight League grabs three, what have you. One, if they're still around, grabs a couple, all that stuff. But you're not going to see a real rival to the UFC rise up quickly without crazy financial backing from a billionaire or a company or really somebody that's an MMA enthusiast that really wants to go all out and will be losing money for a while. That's the big risk there. So that's the important thing with these contract changes the most important thing in my opinion is yes it does open up a world of possibility it is a huge net positive for fighters individuals looking to renegotiate or look at free agency for sure but it's not going to cause this seismic shift in the landscape don't think it will it's just not not a thing that will happen here with that all being said let's talk about the world fight league so if you haven't seen what the World Fight League is, it's a new promotion that's starting up. It's saying it's going to give 50-50 fighter revenue share. It's going to provide health insurance. It's going to be a team-based thing with you know talks of George St. Pierre and some other people talking about owning teams in different cities. It's an interesting concept to... A T. We've seen it before, though, right? International Fight League, IFL, Never Die, Quad City, Silverbacks. It's pretty close to my hometown, so love those guys. But a lot of people have, have made noise about this. A lot of prominent MMA journalists, Errol Hawani being one of them, has talked about this a lot. It's been in the news lately. You know, will the WFL really do the things that they're talking about? They're talking about a... 50-50 revenue, share split, health insurance, retirement, 
a lot of rules surrounding all of that, team ownership and backing from NFL people, big names. It's hard to say whether or not this will be successful, but my initial thoughts are this is kind of IFL 2.0, right? I think that a a big reason why you've got a promotion trying to start this is because health insurance and retirement and revenue share are definitely top of mind right now as we talked about earlier in the show. If you could actually promise that to an individual fighter, especially if I'm a lower mid-card fighter, that that type of stuff would be life-changing for a lot of guys, right? It, and as we know, there are going to be more examples of CTE and health issues beyond retirement for a lot of these fighters. It's just, It makes sense, right? You are putting your body through physically grueling stuff. You're getting hit in the head a lot. Ask anybody that's, you know, done rolling for jujitsu once they get into the late 40s, 50s, all that, like, I, I've heard horror stories about just like, yeah, I'm sore everywhere. I've got a bad knees, all this stuff. You, This type of sport lends itself to a lot of medical problems later on in life. Having guaranteed health insurance, having kind of a retirement fund and getting 50% revenue share, that that's a big promise. That's very enticing. And it's extremely enticing to a lot of guys that aren't filled with this, I don't want to say that they're not aspiring to be champions, but they're maybe a, a bit more realistic about their career. Maybe they're in the UFC or they're looking to get in the UFC and they think they're the best, they're working to be the best, but they know that they might not end up being the champion, right? There's only so many champions that can go around in major promotions. This gives them a safety net. This allows them to move into a sport and do something they love to do and not needing to be the best of the best in order to survive while competing. That's what the promise of this is. It, it is going to be tough for WFL to really work out, partially because of what we just talked about with contracts and high overhead. The UFC's biggest competitive advantage currently, aside from the scarcity of having all the fighters, is their cost dynamics. They pay fighters 15 to 20% of overall revenue. By this promotion, WFL coming out and saying, we're going to give them 50-50 off the bat plus benefits, you are automatically taking away any potential cost dynamics advantage that you have. You're stating up front, we are not going to win the cost war. Our fixed costs and our variable costs are going to be far higher than the UFC. That already puts you at a major disadvantage, right? If you've done that, the only thing that you can hope for now is to either A, become a substitute product to the UFC, or to gain those fighters through scarcity. As contracts come up, you stay alive long enough that you appeal to John Jones and Francis Ngannou and all these champs that then they start to come over. And eventually, over the course of many, many years, you then build up 
your roster to be this big thing. That's really the only two ways that they're looking at this in order to survive and compete with the UFC. Now, if they have the right backing, okay, as I just spoke about, if they have a billionaire, if they have some major players involved, and they have the right financial backing where these guys know, okay, it's going to be six to ten years of, of loss, and then we'll turn it around. Minimum five years, but probably six to ten years will eventually, somewhere in that six to ten year range, we'll turn a profit. If they know that and they're willing to spend money on it, then okay, especially with the new maximum contract length in the UFC, maybe you pull this off. You get enough big names involved, you, you're you able to push this team style and it gains traction, although we've seen in the past the IFL team stuff really didn't work. Their last season, they kind of got rid of it. It wasn't very popular, but maybe, I don't know, maybe now it kind of permeates to more mainstream culture. And it's a different take on MMA that's not out there currently. Maybe if you have that type of financial backing, WFL succeeds. And that's still a big maybe. You still have to win over fans. You still have to win over fighters, which is a huge, huge part of this. You have to win over managers, which is an even bigger part of it. Because as we've seen, managers are often more so power brokers than anything else when it comes to fighters and they want to work with promotions like the UFC and PFL and all that. So they get in the way sometimes. If you take all of that into account, it's a very, very tough road, even if you have the financial backing. If you don't have the financial backing, you're screwed because you won't last five years without necessary financial backing to do this. And you already stated up front that what you're really looking to do here is going to come at a much higher cost than any other promotion out there right now. Because take UFC out of it, Bellator, PFL, one championship, they have better revenue shares, but they don't offer, you know, 50-50 necessarily. And they don't offer all these health benefits and health insurance and retirement stuff. So you're going to be the most expensive product out there, which means you really have to win in customers, you have to win investors, it's going to be a tough sell. It's going to be an extremely tough sell. If I'm looking to invest in a martial arts company, why would I not look at the UFC, right? And and go by proxy to Endeavor. And there are some other pieces there I could see. Maybe you stay away from Endeavor, which with all their debt and everything, it makes sense. But if I'm really gung-ho on investing in a martial arts property, why not them? Why not Viacom? Why and Bellator? There are less risky investments that could end up still being very profitable to me as an investor that are not the, the most expensive out there. It, it's going to be proving the concept that suddenly Team MMA works. It's going to be getting big names like GSP and, you know, if they've got NFL guys or big celebrities owning teams getting them involved, that's going to be a huge piece of this. And then it's going to be getting the right fighters and putting on the right events that you actually get people to watch. We've seen PFL struggle with ratings, struggle with what they're doing. I love PFL's tournament concept. I like what they're trying to do. It's had issues, right? This past year, especially, you had a bunch of issues with tournament stuff, especially with um, Fabricio Verdum and all of that type of You've had scenarios like that that have caused issues and you've had some kinks that need to be worked out. 
that will be part of what the WFL has to go through is proving their concept and dealing with issues that arise like that. And if they can't make it profitable, which we know PFL is nowhere near profitable right now, you're in trouble. The best thing you can do is sell the league to a big broadcast sports media right deal. And what media company wants to do that when you know you're going to be competing against the UFC or Bellator, who's got Viacom and Showtime backing, and the ratings might not be there. It's a big reason the PFL might be in trouble. It's another reason one championship could be kind of circling the drain. If they don't get a broadcast media rights deal, I expect one championship to be under in within 18 months, if not much sooner. But maximum, I'd say 18 months. Because their losses keep mounting, investors are getting more skittish, and you have to have profit. You have to make your money back to pay off the investors. Investors don't just give away money for free. You have Occasionally, you, you do have crazy investors that do that. I have actually seen that multiple times. But even then, we're not talking about a never-ending cash flow, right? Billionaires are not sitting there being like, you know what, I really like this. I'm just going to lose $200 million a year just paying this off until I die. That doesn't happen. It does not. So I'm very skeptical about WFL actually working and becoming a competitor. I really don't think it will. We'll see what happens. We'll see how it all shakes out. But I'm I'm iffy on whether or not they'll actually be able to compete, especially with the UFC, even with Bellator and PFL and One, providing that One and PFL are able to continue because they need to turn a profit. They're now later in their life cycle. WFL, I am more high on if they have big financial backers. If they come out six months from now and say, okay, we've got the backing of a couple billionaires, a couple NFL owners, a couple other people, then I'm interested. Because then they're the type of person that can go ahead and take a big loss now and take advantage of those five-year max contracts in the UFC. And maybe that's why WFL waited until this year to kind of announce that this is coming. Right, because the first of those contracts will be up, of those five-year contracts will be up in 2020, since 2017 is when the, that change seemed to be made, or 2022. Sorry, not 2020. So that's that's a big piece of this. It really is. But without that backing, I'm not high on the WFL at all. I'm really not. I think they last a year or two, and then they're, and they still, even if they have that backing, have a long, long road ahead of them. We'll see. I'd love to be wrong, but I'm not. Not super on board with WFL, at least right now. All right, last thing I want to cover today, just very briefly, is a lot of talk happened when Luis Pena was released due to his domestic violence charges, and John Jones, who didn't actually have charges filed against him for domestic violence, but obviously there were reports out there of what happened, seemed to be DV-related stuff, being kept on the roster. A lot of big notable outlets said, you know, it's time to cut Jones. He's more of a risk now than keeping him. All of that stuff. I'm going to look at this from a business perspective. Keep that in mind. This is not my personal opinion. This is not moral type of stuff. This this is looking at it from my business opinion. Here's the thing. John Jones is a big asset to the UFC, right? 
He's not generating Conor McGregor level buys. At this point, I don't even think he's generating Adesanya type buys, but he's still a very well-known name in the sport. Technically undefeated other than that DQ, but is seen as kind of the undefeated goat in a lot of circles. And, well, decisions aside, we won't get into that, but he also is able to make very exciting matchups either at heavyweight against Francis Ngannou or going back down the light heavyweight against Jan. I think the perfect ideal situation for the UFC would have been Adesanya beats Jan, and then you do Jones versus Adesanya for the belt because that just elevates either one of their star power up further. That's a that's a dream matchup in a lot of fans' minds, and for the UFC, that's a lot of money coming in, I think. Still, Ngannou versus Jones should be a lot of money. I've talked before about how Ngannou kind of missed his window of being the real superstar after getting wrestled by Stipe so much, but he can kind of build that back and still be a, a name that moves pay-per-views, for sure, especially against a guy like John Jones. That's the type of value John Jones has as an asset for the UFC. And when you're looking at cutting a resource or asset, any business, you've got to look at what they're able to bring in relative to what the cost is or the risks of keeping them are. There have been discussions and talks regarding John Jones's value for the promotion. Right, you've got, according to Paul Giff's fighter MRP study, you've got John Jones bringing in a much higher MRP than he actually costs. He is technically being underpaid according to that study. That type of fighter is important for the UFC because a lot of fighters, right, don't bring in their true value. There's a cost and an investment for the promotion that they end up hoping that that new guy they signed on Contender Series or from Tough is going to end up being a star, becoming the next, you know, Adesanya, McGregor, needle mover, right? That's what they're really hoping for. But obviously they signed plenty of these guys that end up being a wash. And from a business perspective, that's a sunk cost for the UFC. That's okay. We needed fighters on the card, so we signed them, but they didn't pan out the way we want. Well, okay. We, we actually lost money on that because what that fighter actually generated revenue-wise, well, you know, especially if they're making above the bare minimum payment, well, we could have gotten somebody else. Got somebody, Greg Hardy comes to mind, right? Um, he, the last known payouts we have, Greg Hardy, are, are up there for a relatively green type of guy. And he's lost a couple of times now. He, they've built him up. And then he's lost against Volkov. He lost against Tybura. He, he, he's lost in ways that, you know, he's right now not on the road to becoming a superstar, this real big figure. And so if he ends up continuing to lose and then being cut, well, they definitely overpaid for him. Will Brooks, another guy, right? Looked fantastic in Bellator. Came to the UFC. Didn't do that well. Definitely overpaid for him. Hector Lombard, probably the best example of a guy that they thought was going to come in and be a big name in the UFC and just never really panned out. And they were paying him a lot higher than they were, you know, a lot of middleweights that are just kind of off the street or maybe even smaller promotions. Those are some costs. John Jones is a known proven moneymaker. 
if you put him in a headliner, he will make and beat that threshold, that minimum threshold that's now in place for pay-per-view buys, generally. Not always, but generally he has historically. You can never know, you know, what would happen now if he got into a fight with, say, Jan or, or somebody else, what that would do. But against Nganu, against Adesanya, I bet he would be a big part of the needle moving in those cases. Because of that, you then look at the risks of these domestic violence allegations, right? I think if charges had been brought against him, formal charges, I think you still get Dana's responsible. We'll see how it all plays out. But maybe then you look at, at cutting him, depending on what his most recent numbers were, kind of his negotiation tactics that he's been open about being upset with Hunter Campbell, UFC's chief business officer in terms of contract negotiations, uh, didn't fight Ngannou when they wanted to make the fight for Ngannou originally, all of that. I think you have some... You have a little bit more, you know, cause to fire him. But even then, what's going to happen here, right? Yes, the UFC has a code of conduct that they introduced in 2013, but they've largely ignored it. And sanctioning bodies when it comes to domestic violence and other issues don't usually do things, right? It's very rare that a commission ever steps in and says, whoa, this is going on, not allowed to fight. I... Don't think they've ever done that with domestic violence charges or previous offenders, which Greg Hardy was convicted of domestic violence. And then on an appeal, the witness didn't show up and it was thrown out, but he was convicted of that. And we've heard of other stories. This, this is a constant thing in MMA. Lower level guys, right? Like Pena or other people. But we, we've heard of other stories of domestic violence Pena, you had a lot of detail and it kind of caught caught the attention of people, I think, during a time when, yeah, okay, it made sense for the UFC to kind of make that choice. But with Jones, right, let's say he has actual charges filed against him. And let's say the UFC says, okay, we'll wait and see how this blows over. We'll roll with this. It's very possible you wait six months and it all blows over. Very, very possible, right? If Jones, it goes to court and Jones gets convicted, that's a little bit harder to kind of let go. Um, and, and maybe you have to do something, but you might also, as the UFC, pressure Jones to take a plea deal if it gets to that point. Like, you have it be something else. And then they can kind of say, well, it's not technically this or blah, 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 or this, you know, it's fuzzy details. Point is, they could probably write it out. Yes, you have a lot of media screaming, what the heck is this? This is ridiculous. You have subset of fans saying this is atrocious, this is awful. But by and large, there aren't really any consequences if I'm the UFC to holding on to John Jones, right? Unless the mainstream media now really goes after you and really kind of, you know, gets in your face and it gets traction there, it's not going to be enough as a business, you're going to look at that risk and say, okay, that's a risk that this, you know, initial storm could be bad and we might have to cut him if it blows up into this massive thing. But if it blows over at any point and then maybe, you know, keeps circling back around every once in a while through media articles or through certain people bringing it up, that's not a risk to the UFC at that point. 
The, the only risk there is the initial storm. If you weather that initial storm, you're good. Sure, your reputation maybe takes a little hit. You're viewed as more sleazy in the eyes of certain people. Of course, of course. But in terms of financial hit or, or actual brand harm, it's that initial storm. And we've seen that happen in other companies, right? You've got major corporations where you might have a sex scandal or you might have you know, some type of inappropriate work going on or whatever, and, and certain CEOs weather it. You know, you have Nestle, the CEO of Nestle talking about how water isn't a fundamental human right, that they should be able to own water in, in Africa and do all these things. And that's pretty bad. You have Mar Mark Zuckerberg getting slammed left and right on Facebook stuff all the time. He's still there, still fine. It's all about whether or not that initial storm is enough to warrant change or not. And that initial storm can lead to a bigger storm, and yes, then you got issues. But if, if that initial storm dies down, you're probably fine without a new scandal occurring. Keep in mind, John Jones has done a hit and run on a pregnant woman, uh, tested positive for steroids twice, had multiple, multiple arrests for a myriad of things. The UFC clearly sees enough value in him that unless it either A, affects his ability to perform in the cage, or B, causes enough of a mainstream media storm that it's going to cause brand harm, they're going to let it go, right? I really think that's where they're at. I think if, even if you have domestic violence charges brought against Jones, it drags out for a while, and even if he's convicted, yes, that would be a story, but if ESPN and New York Times and other people didn't jump on that story and really kind of throw it in people's face, uh, I think even then, UFC keeps Jones. Because from a business perspective, he's too valuable to let go for those reasons. Morally, it's a whole different conversation. And you could argue, yes, the UFC should do the right thing here, but they're under no obligation to. And we've seen time and time again, the UFC is all about the bottom line. And John Jones helps their bottom line. If Jones, they cut Jones and then he goes to a competitor, that's going to hurt them, right? That's going to actually cause them to have a competitor make a fair amount of money on an asset they could have kept probably. The only real risk from a business perspective is, could it cause brand harm? And right now, especially with the fact that there were no official charges filed, even with the details, no, not at all. It's already mostly blown over by the time I've recorded this. So you're going to keep him from a strategic perspective. He's far too valuable a resource. He brings in net positive money on pay-per-views. You definitely keep him. That's an easy call from, a, from the business side of things. Again, morally, all that stuff, there's, there's lots of other objections that can be made. I'm not trying to go into that realm. But from a business perspective, you 100% keep him. He has actual files charges against him. You get a little bit murkier. He's convicted. Then things really become an issue, possibly. But even then, given the UFC's reputation and given some of the things that some fighters have already done, I don't know that it really becomes that big a deal unless it's blown up to become a big enough deal, the UFC has to address it. Cutting a guy like Pena though, right? That's an easy win for the UFC. 
you've got a guy that is is not a big name star, even though he did have a little bit of a following from the Ultimate Fighter. Um, but he's not, you know, bringing in pay per view buys. He's not winning and, and about to be a title contender and all this stuff. It's easy enough to cut Payne and say, "Oh yeah, that's the right call." You read that report; it's terrible. Yeah, he had actual DV charges filed against him. Sure, cut those guys by all means. But Jones, no. There's way too much upside to keeping him and way too little risk to warrant it. So that's why the UFC kept him. That'll continue to be the trend. Just as a heads up, I expect, I don't know about Jones in particular, but there will always be new scandals in MMA. It's a risk-reward calculation. Always is, especially on the UFC side. That's how it goes. All right, guys. I want to thank you so much for watching listening. Make sure you hit the like button, subscribe, bell notification. I will throw this up on Anchor as well. So if you're, you know, more of a listener guy, by all means do that. But please subscribe and support the Sure Dog channel. I'm super happy to be here. Super glad they took me in and that I'm getting to continue to do this. If you have any questions, anything you want me to cover, all of that, leave it in the comments below. I will try and read all of them, get to them. But appreciate the love, guys. And until next time, get that money.